The following is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Hackey Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we have Dr. Mark Burton, the developmental pediatrician, who's going to share all of his knowledge with us about ADHD, the autism spectrum, and all of our different brains, especially during these coronavirus times. Mark, thanks for being with us. I appreciate the opportunity. Nice to meet you in person. How did you get into this? Um, I actually um, pretty much grew up around the field of special education, um, so it's always been an important part of my life. So um, it's, uh, so I guess, I guess that's the short of it. My um, my family's all in special education, and then a very um, profound part of my early childhood was we had a neighbor who ran the local Special Olympics, and I started volunteering there and working there very young. So, um, so it's just always been an important part of my life. You wrote a great article in the New York Times mm-hmm. that I saw. Thank you. And yeah. uh, I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, quote, Things are up in the air right now, and by the time this comes out, things may look completely different. Yes. One of the ways I look at it is coronavirus put everything on steroids. <laughs> in other words, yeah. all the neurodiversity characteristics got put on steroids. So we've had to develop more powerful tools. And one of the reasons I wrote the Asper Tools book about Asperger's and autism is because we're into here at Different Brains giving positive tools you can really use, mm-hmm. okay? And so we've had to develop some new tools for ADHD and spectrum individuals and mm-hmm. these things. Could you go over some of your favorite tools that you're advising your families at this time? Um, you know, an important starting point and even beginning to have the discussion is just recognizing that um, we can't do anything cookie cutter right now. I mean, and, and on two different levels, I mean, or at least two different, many, maybe even more than two different levels, but certainly I was just going to start with saying like on the, from the child's point of view, you know, like obviously everyone is so different that their needs are profoundly different. And, you know, so you have children who are, you know, whose social needs aren't being met and that's the, you know, on some level, the biggest issue going on. And then you have people who, you know, have pretty profoundly intense, you know, neurological and, you know, neuro, you know, neurodevelopmental concerns where, you know, home learning just utterly undermines all of their interventions. So it's hard to be cookie cutter because, you know, it's certainly the field is so diverse and families are so diverse. Um, it isn't about a single answer, I think, as much as being kind of I mean, what I try to do in my own thinking is just to stay organized and methodical about what's possible um, and then try to, you know, manage that. And then the other side of it, I think that's important to look at is that families are just all over the place right now. You know, if you have the um, ability for one parent to be home and, you know, helping out, you know, that's really fortunate. And that maybe can, you know, that's a piece of things if you have the financial resources or the, you know, medical coverage or, you know, there's all sorts of things here that are so variable. And then you have other families where you have two working parents and a child who has intense needs 
you know, and, the, and they can't go to school. And, you know, that's a whole other discussion. So the way I typically, you know, as opposed to giving, um, I think the first step before giving specific advice is just organizing, like, what is possible nowadays? You know, what, what, how can we organize our thinking, at least in terms of planning? And I think that's a valuable first step. I mean, we have to look at, you know, what's the situation in our household individually um, and what's possible. And I think you can look at it, um, in my mind, I sort of loosely break it into, into four parts in essence. And I think that uh, it's a framework that you can come back to periodically to reorganize or readjust. Um, so one piece of things is looking at what's possible in terms of my school supports. So in terms of individualizing some of the supports you're talking about, um, we can look at uh, either introducing or adapting like a 504 plan or an IEP. And while it isn't, you know, I imagine no one's had time to push what the legal bounds are here. Certainly the right thing to do is recognize that, you know, those supports are supposed to support someone's education quite broadly. And if we're in a situation where online learning is going to continue indefinitely, then the schools, you know, have to adapt to you know, the needs of diverse, you know, of, of children with special education, you know, requirements. So most kids learn much better, for example, one-on-one. -on -one. So we might want to try to push for the 504 plan or IEP to add more one-on-one, -on -one, you know, FaceTime, you know, online time, because it's going to go, you know, better than any group situation. Um, it might be more, um, you know, more th increasing the therapies a little bit because they're one-on-one. -on -one. And certainly in terms of some of the bullet points that you were asking about, one of the single most practical things we can ask schools to do or do ourselves if our school won't is, it, you know, may seem trivial, but it's, it's a big deal, is to just organize each school day into a single list. Because I think a lot of parents and kids are getting swamped by, you know, there's a school day, but it's being posted in like six or seven different places. And we haven't really started to talk about the specifics, but it's really important to look at ADHD, for example, kind of as an organizational disorder. It's not an attention disorder, really. So if you have a disorder of self-management skills and organization, like anything you can do to facilitate organization and staying on task can be epic. So just that one step of like, you know, here's the one list to keep track of for the day, you know, and it can link out to all the other websites, you know, can be a huge deal. Um, so that's one piece of things is, and I, you know, and I'll pause in a moment so you can, you know, we can talk about some of the details, but educational. Don't let me interrupt. You're on a great roll here. Keep going. Okay. I'm learning well, so much. You want to do it. So the educational piece is huge and it does mean thinking outside the box because, you know, we have, you know, educational plans can be confusing enough during typical times, but now we have to think about how can we ask the school to do things in a way that meets our child's needs at home. And that's one piece. And then the second piece, which is where it's such an uneven playing field. I mean, it's just not fair the way our country is set up in terms of resources right now, or what can we do as a family, you know, that will help support our children at home. So the second piece of sort of outside of school, what can we do? And that can be, um, you know, the sort of, again, if you look at ADHD in particular, it's an organizational disorder. So it's like, what are we capable of as parents in helping kids you know, set up a school day that's really structured instead of keeping it open-ended. And that's a major thing for ADHD in particular. Um, it could be adding extra supports like tutoring, which is, um, you know, this is already being written about and discussed a lot. I mean, you know, this is another way our country is getting more um, skewed because uh, certainly if you have the resources while education is so profoundly disrupted, um, small group or one-on-one -on -one 
uh, tutoring is, you know, is, is way more effective for a lot of kids and just keeping them up while we're waiting for things to get back to normal. I guess I'm not doing it complete. I'm not thinking about it the same way you are particularly because I am assuming at some point we're getting back to some new normal, but, um, but we'll, we'll see, I suppose who's right. Um, but the, so at home, you know, the, and then the third part of that, which we, you know, which I haven't gotten to is, you know, trying to meet our needs as parents because it is, completely overwhelming and it's miserable sometimes to look and feel like you want to be doing more and you can't right now and um and you gotta you know there's, there's just that bottom line message sometimes of you know when we take care of ourselves even a little bit as parents you know that helps our kids so you know trying to figure out how to deal with our own you know it's like obviously our kids come first it's not like when you know back when we were young and single and could kind of you know, go away for the weekend just because we felt like it was the right thing to do. You know, we have a lot of responsibilities. Within that, it's useful. I mean, one of the best pieces of advice, which I um, probably overquote that I ever got, was going into medical school, which doesn't, there's nothing special about medical school, really. I mean, we all go through periods in our lives that are stressful and demanding, uh, was, you know, when you get there, find one thing that helps keep you sane and grounded. And no matter how crazy it gets, don't let go of that one thing. And I think that's useful advice for any of us in any situation. I mean, this is a complete mess, and yet we all have to stay strong. So as a parent, like, what can you, you know, prioritize for yourself that will help you stay resilient? Because when we feel more grounded, um, that helps our kids. And of course, that's what led me to start um, that type of thinking. That that concern was what was led, what led me to start integrating mindfulness into pediatrics in the first place. Is, now, when I, when I listen to so many uh, people and they talk about the family and they talk about the parents during these tough times, it reminds me once of uh, when I, I got booed at a regional uh, boys and girls club meeting it was, you know, here in Fort Lauderdale, one we have 12 clubs, and I'm a past chair of the uh, corporate board here. We have uh, we serve 12,000 at-risk youth at the Boys and Girls Clubs of Broward County here in Fort Lauderdale. And um, I was speaking at a regional thing, and the speaker before me, who was so good and so well-intentioned, was talking about the parents need to do this and the parents need to do that and everything. And I got up and said, if you go to the Hacky Reitman Boys and Girls Club on Broward Boulevard near I-95, and you ask the kids to raise their hands if they got two parents at home, nobody yeah. raises their hands. Right. And so you're talking about foster kids, you're talking about grandparents, right. you're talking about individuals, and now if you add schooling on top of that, yeah, and then the additional no... problem, we were the only meals they were getting, you know? So yeah. we were, we've been able right. to still serve the kids food if the parents come by and pick it up. Right. Could you care yep. to address that a little bit? Oh, totally. I mean, there's no, um, um, you know, there, there's, there is a basic reality of what we're capable of as parents too. And you have to put that in the mix. And it's not, um, there's a lot of discussion sometimes that, I mean, it, it, it's, um, it cuts both ways a little. On, on the one hand, you just have to start from what's actually possible. And there's a lot of, um, you know, there are a lot of interventions you can do that do rely heavily on parents. And if you don't sort of explore what is a parent capable of, literally, logistically, you're not going to get anywhere. And there's a lot of kids who, you know, both parents work, one parent works and there's four kids or, one, you know, one parent's home, but there's four kids at home. Um, you know, somebody has really intense, 
you know, neurodevelopmental needs that require, you know, more, you know, constant attention almost. You know, there's all sorts of things that undermine what a parent's capable of. And we have to talk about that. And we have to talk about parents' emotional health, too. It's no, you know, there was a paper years ago looking at ADHD alone that talked about something just called decision-making angst, which is just the overwhelm of having to constantly make these hard choices. Um, so that all shit has to be put on the table if we're going to really address the needs of parents and families. Um, the flip side, which is nuanced but worth um, examining once in a while, is that kids really do require adult support sometimes. And a lot of the times, uh, the analogy I use is it's kind of like pushing a boulder over a hill. So it's like choosing your battles. And if there's, you know, there are times where even though you don't have much to give as a parent, like if you can, you know, rally for, you know, three, six weeks of some new plan, things get so much easier afterwards that, you know, there, 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 is, there is that exploration sometimes. You know, when it comes to if it starts feeling like Sisyphus, I mean, that actually to me is when it's time to come back to this sort of overall model of reexamining our whole plan that I talked about. Yeah, I mean, that would be the short of it. I mean, and, which I think is an important part of life anyway. We try something and then we have to sort of check in once in a while and say, like, is this working? So, you know, the analogy of pushing a boulder over a hill is not a, you know, warm, fuzzy one. But at the same time, it's true sometimes that, you know, if like, for example, if a child's, you know, acting out a lot at home, you know, it's really hard to be really serious about a behavioral plan. But often if you can just you know, pull that, even though you're overwhelmed, if you can pull that together, you know, for a short stretch of time, then their behavior gets better than, you know, than a month from now, you know, you're going to be putting in less effort, you're gonna have a little more time space. And that's real. If it starts feeling like Sisyphus, that's why I kind of use this overall model. I think the, the important thing to do then is to step back and reexamine what's possible, what can I change, something's not working now. So when you start feeling there, you have to step back and say, okay, you know, and then that's where I start thinking, and you know, which I, I, I'm, you know, I'm halfway through, but you know, there are these areas of life we can, you know, the, you can sort of say like, can I, well, if it's not working, do I need to change the school plan? Do I need a different resource at home? You know, totally understanding, you know, that it's not always possible, but you, that's what you want to examine and see if it's possible. You know, do is there something I'm doing at home that needs to change, or someone I need to call, or something? You know, like you have to, if it starts feeling Sisyphus, you got to step yeah, back could and say, change like, the status quo is yeah, not your friend. Yeah, something, something in the plan isn't working then. So what can, what, what can I, what am I capable of shifting right now? Um, and before I get to mindfulness, I'll just mention the last two things really quickly, and then we can get to them in more detail. But, you know, the rest of that sort of way I look at things is there's a third piece of things that just has to do with um, health. Well, not just, that's a big thing. You know, like extra, you talk about resilience, you talk about learning, and then you talk about neurodiverse um People, children who often, you know, have issues with sleep or aren't exercising much, you know, there's this whole health diet, piece. That, diet. Yeah, diet. So health is a third thing. Like you can sort of check in once in a while. And then the last one, and then I'll come back to mindfulness like you asked. But in terms of the four pieces that we re-examine is the medical piece. Is just looking at, you know, is there something um, medical or around medication that needs to be looked at? So let's review for our audience yeah. at this time, the right. list of the four things. So it's, you know, school-based supports, family-based supports, health, and medical, medication or medical. And that's like, you know, so when it starts feeling like Sisyphus, which it certainly is reasonable to expect in May in the middle of everything going on at times, you know, that's what you can control. Or I think that covers most everything, you know, and you can just look at not necessarily even all at once, like, 
okay, something's not going right. You know, like school is an incredible stress every day. You know, what, what's the next change we can make or what's, you know, what's possible? Um, or, you know, do we have to reconfigure something about our school day at home? Um, and even the medication piece, which is something I tend to be very, um, you know, methodical about, I sort of work my way there in most situations, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, might not be the time to, you know, watch and wait quite as long because, you know, it's like all, you know, we're, we're trying to get a handle on a real crisis and, you know, they can be helpful for some kids and it's, you know, it might be worth discussing that also. Um, do you consider as one of the world's authorities on ADHD, which I consider you, would you say it's more of a focus or more of an executive function? Oh, I think the only the only useful way to look at ADHD and really get a handle on it is to see it as a a concrete delay in executive function skills. Focus is part of uh, so so executive function just to define it is more or less like the brain manager. There's a part of the brain, a skill set that's responsible, uh, uh, physically part of the brain, the front of the brain, for organization, planning, prioritization. Uh, the way I short uh, shorthand it with parents or ask parents to shorthand it is, if you had a, if you have to put the word, if you can put the word management to it, it probably has to do with executive function. So, you know, you have to manage your attention. So when kids have attention issues, they don't have a short attention span alone. They have a hard time shifting attention. They hyper focus. They can't attend when it gets demanding. You know, so you have to manage your attention, you have to manage social situations, you have to manage papers, you have to manage your emotions. So anything you can put the word management to is executive function based. And if you put ADHD in the attention box, you're going to way undermanage it yourself because, um, because it's way more than that. Um, and so when it comes to ADHD, Again, it's always good to have a general approach to something and then the details. I mean, the, a really vital general approach to ADHD is that some people uh, kind of thumbnail it as it's like a third delay in self-management skills. You know, I have a brilliant nine-year-old, you know, who academically can do, you know, 11 and 12-year-old work, but their self-management skills are more like a six-year-old, you know, and then you have to, so in the short run, you know, the interventions are what's going to catch him up. But in the short run, you know, that's what his skills are like. You know, how would I approach the school day recognizing that he has really demanding academic work to do, but his self-management skills like time management, organization, staying on task are more like a six-year-old. And by the way, this is where it directly becomes stressful to parents. I mean, you can't say that without realizing that ADHD inherently puts more demand on adults. You know, there's no, there's no, you can't, that's why you always have to work with families to me. I mean, you can't separate the two things because it, it immediately, you know, all of the interventions rely more on adults. Can you tell us about your books? I can. And they, that comes back to one question I didn't answer, by the way, which had to do with mindfulness. So, um, oh, let's talk about mindfulness so, first. Well, they, they, it over, the answers overlap really in some way. So I'll, I'll start with mindfulness because it all ties together. Um, you know, in spite my, mindfulness is um, a word that gets used many different ways now, and it's almost cliched. It's been in the pop culture, you know, it's like it's becoming a headline, but it's really been around for centuries. And you know, the core premise of it um, is really not what people often think. It's not about being calm all the time or like you know perfect in some way. It's really the opposite. I mean, the core premise of mindfulness practice is that life is you know inherently uncertain and changing all the time. And if we can 
sort of train ourselves to to live with that with more ease you know it makes it makes our lives better you know so it's not um it's like a gym program you know to use a boxing analogy it's like training you know you basically we have all this mental habit we've developed over a lifetime um and it turns out the brain there's a concept called neuroplasticity which is you know at least to a degree we we can retrain our brains and, and sort of create different habits that help us manage things so the definition of mindfulness on its simplest level is usually, um, in essence, giving moment-to-moment unbiased attention to what's going on, um, in, you know, basically. And, and each of those pieces is, um, I hope, practical. You know, it's meant to be. Mindfulness is meant to be something anybody can do. It's been studied in, like, cross-culturally, you know, inner city. You know, it's all over the place. Because what it really means is that we tend to spend our lives um, caught up in reactivity, future, past, you know, we're doing one thing, but our mind's 11 years in the future, or somebody annoys us, and we're off on our little, this is what I do when I get annoyed, spin. And while all that's going on, we're kind of on autopilot. We're not thinking clearly. We're not re-examining our assumptions. We're just not at our best. And it's intuitive to most people. I mean, we, we, most of us have had, you, know, you have these moments where you just, you're on vacation, or you're just having a good day, and you just you just see things clearly. You just see things in a reality-based way. So the practice of mindfulness is just about trying to reach that kind of resilience more consistently. Um, it's also not meant to be passive. You know, there's often a fear that we're supposed to be okay with everything. It's actually quite the opposite. I mean, you're, you, the goal is you let things settle enough so that you can see clearly, you know, if there's something to be done, which, you know, so in a moment of crisis, you know, even navigating that is gonna be, um, more straightforward if we can think clearly. So the real premise is that, you know, without without putting some effort into it, we tend to be caught up in reactivity, which makes more reactivity. You know, if you want to look at it from the point of view of stress, it's like when we're stressed, we think differently. You know, when we're thinking stressful thoughts, that makes our body and our emotional state different, which then changes how we think again, which then, and it just sort of escalates constantly. So with mindfulness, we're trying to practice something that helps us you know, so the so the core practice doesn't have to be, but often is a practice of meditation. But it's a very specific kind. You're not trying to make anything magical happen. It's just that you're just trying to catch yourself more often when you're caught up in your thinking and caught up somewhere else, and come back to you know giving full attention. You know, for a surgeon, for example, I, I can a friend of mine who practices mindfulness as a surgeon, and he says he's been trying to teach it to the um, interns because he finds they get too much in autopilot and distracted when they're finishing up a surgery um, because they're sewing and they've sewed a million times before, so they're not really paying attention. And he's trying to teach them like, you know, each stitch you throw, you have to pause long enough to know exactly where that suture is going. You, know, you have to give full attention to that moment because you know, maybe it's different this time. Make sure you're, you know, you're doing it correctly. Um, so mindfulness is about seeing with precision in that way. Um, and with our kids, they pick up on it right away. It's that moment where we catch ourselves because, you know, we're hanging out playing, but, you know, 80% of our brain is dealing with a work problem. And they know the difference. So mind, a mindfulness, you know, mindfulness might just be catching ourselves in that moment and realizing for the next few minutes, you know, the most important thing is to try to get full attention to, you know, this game right now. And then I'll deal with work later. And it just becomes a habit and an imperfect one. Or, you know, it's not that that, that habit of getting caught up in the future is going to go away completely. So... And there's yeah, interesting there's neurophysiology to that, too. You know, yeah, there's a science to it now, which is actually how I got here. So to come back to, you know, 
why I did this, why I think it's valuable, really my books too. You know, what happened for me is that um, I was fortunate enough that somebody introduced me to it as a medical resident. You know, I was obviously, you know, I always have that same message. I mean, that was what was stressful for me at that time. We all have our stresses and I found it very helpful, but I kept it to myself for quite a long time. You know, this is before it sort of had become, you know, popular in essence. And then what happened, you know, I went to a medical conference, which was about the science of mindfulness, stress management, and neuroplasticity with a lot of famous researchers and uh, speakers there. And really in a weekend, I realized like, this is crazy that I'm keeping this to myself. I'm working in this field where everyone is overwhelmed. You know, everyone would, you know, really have, you know, people are often having a hard time managing stuff. And this is practical and real. And, um, and like you alluded to, like since that point, which is around 19, you know, early 1990s, um, the research has totally taken off. You know, there now is plenty of research showing that it helps with stress, anxiety, physically changes the brain in different ways. Um, some of it in a very short amount of time. There's like a Harvard study showing a growth in the area of the brain related to emotional self-management after about eight weeks of practice. Um, and um, so the point is, is that... Um, and and just let's just no, stress for ahead. our audience too. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, please go. Uh, it's just something I've recently got into. The concept I had was you had to spend hours and there were bells and candles. Yeah. It had 10 minutes. And the way yes. I approach it is the same way when I reboot my computer, you know, just take right. a couple of minutes and then, right. and now let me get back to non-interrupting. I'm sorry. I just wanted to no, say no, that doing, to our that's, audience. That's a great thing to say. I mean, that's, and it's all about reality. And, you know, if you're a parent, you're not going to do hours and hours with bells and whistles. It's just like you catch yourself when you can. You do five minutes, you do 10 minutes. You know, there was a study done a few years ago um, where they just taught people how to wash their hands mindfully, which is, again, it can sound like mumbo jumbo, but it's very practical. It's like you can, excuse me, not wash the dishes. You can do it washing your hands nowadays because, you know, you can wash the dishes and get caught up in how much you resent it and something's going on at school and work and I wish my, you know, partner would do the dishes once in a while and you spend the whole time or you can just, you know, the, the, the core of the practice is simply that um, you, there's ways to just bring your awareness back. Like you can be all caught up in all that anxiety and resentment, or you can just focus on physically what it feels like to be washing the dishes. Because not because you're forcing anything to happen, but just because it's something to pay attention to in essence. And, and they showed it after a week of that practice, people's anxiety level was starting to come down. Because it's, as you said, it's just a break. It's just a reboot for a few minutes and you break that stress cycle. And if you get in the habit of doing that regularly, you know, it, it helps you stay more settled more often. So, um, so from that point forward in my, um, you know, professional life, I started talking about mindfulness more directly, integrating it into, you know, my clinical practice, uh, speaking about it. It's a so, real tool. It's a real tool. It's a really valuable tool, you know, and, um, you know, should never be packaged or sold as a, you know, as a fix, but it's a really valuable support for lots of other things. So in ADHD care, for example, you know, ADHD is a overwhelmingly stress producing disorder. It really is because it's a life management disorder. So it's hard for the people who have it because they're getting overwhelmed trying to keep up with life. It's hard for their parents for all the reasons we've talked about. And in any part of life, if you're trying to make a change happen, it's really hard when you're feeling swamped and overwhelmed. So mindfulness can be a tool that helps you feel more resilient, you know, feel more consistently settled. And that enables you to do some of the other things more consistently because ADHD is no, you know, requires lots, you know, you got to manage 
dealing with your school and you got to do these things differently at home to get homework done and you got tough choices to make about medication and you know your child doesn't want to exercise but you want them to and it's all stressful so mindfulness is like this you know tool that helps you navigate all that and that's true for any of us in any situation um it's also very i mean i feel like in the middle of everything going on right now it's important to just acknowledge that it's also very reality based it's not saying that you're happy with things it's acknowledging whatever is actually going on so you know it isn't always pretty like it's set up to be it's like it totally can be recognized and like like you said i think at the start it's like this is totally overwhelming and i don't know what to do and you know and it's important to acknowledge that if that's how you're feeling because it's part of what's going on then get your different uh systems your parasympathetic system and you know your breathing and let's talk about your books okay so the books then are just uh, to continue that thought you know my passion is sort of integrating mindfulness which i think now really is part of evidence-based practice into um supporting families so um the um so I, uh, let's see, I have a fourth book coming out, but the two books I wrote about ADHD are integrate mindfulness as a support for all the rest of kind of evidence-based ADHD. Um, and I always want to present things in a way that just makes it as accessible as possible to parents and families. So kind of using really plain language, help families understand, um, first of all, why from an ADHD point of view, uh, it's important to really like, not in an academic way, understand what executive function is. Because a lot of this, so from an ADHD point of view, you know, the science has outstripped a lot of the older books and a lot of, or, you know, sort of understanding it as an attention disorder. So as a parent, if you want to understand, um, you know, ADHD fully and support someone, it's not about the medication or not the medication or 504 plan or not the 504 plan. It's really understanding how executive function impacts life across the board. You know, for example, it's been linked to obesity. I mean, it's like it's all over the place. So it's really meant to be a practical support for families that integrate. And then, and then in there, if you want it, it's not required, or, you know, is this mindfulness piece of how can you use mindfulness to develop a practice for yourself and maybe for your kids that helps you navigate this tough situation. So, um, so the, so, so the books, those two books integrate mindfulness into ADHD. What are um, the names of the books? So the first book was family ADHD solution, uh, which was kind of a narrative approach to it all. And then there was a workbook that came out called the uh, mindful parenting for ADHD. Um, and then the, the third, the third one I wrote is called, um, how children thrive, which is, um, really bringing a lot of the same concepts into general parenting. Um, I guess the shorthand for that we've sort of come up with a little bit is it's kind of the the modern science of back to the basics parenting. It's, you know, I think one of the things it's really valuable to hold on to in the middle of just the chaos where this is even before the pandemic, obviously, but, you know, just of the internet based world we're living in, the pressures, you know, there's so much being sold to us at parents and kids are being pushed so hard, so young to recognize that the, um, you know, the science hasn't of child development hasn't really changed. And what really helps children grow up strong and resilient are things that any family can do. Yeah. So that, so that other books more a general approach. So it's, it's a general approach to supporting kids um, that integrates mindfulness again. Um, and then in the, and then the next one that's coming out is actually the first book I'm writing for teens. <clears throat> what I've learned today. Okay. That crystallized for me that I had an idea about what, which is really that ADHD like so many other entities, should be renamed. 
because yeah. it's a misdirection, you know? Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of seeing all of our brains as being on a spectrum, not an autism spectrum, but on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And these different entities have different traits, more mm -hmm. or less. And you're seeing all the overlap as a developmental pediatrician mm -hmm. because it doesn't, nothing exists in a vacuum. You can't have ADHD or autism or you name it without some degree of anxiety, without some degree mm -hmm. of, say, some depression. And at the other end of the spectrum, you can't have uh, cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's without having lots of overlap. Right. And you can't have Down syndrome without a 50% chance of developing Alzheimer's. So right. it's, it all comes in together. And mm -hmm. you, Dr. Mark Burton, you have to save all of us. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot to ask, but... Um, please do, though. Please do. Yeah. Can you please tell the uh, audience how they can learn more about you? Um. I have a website, which is uh, developmentaldoctor.com that um, certainly, you know, it, it, you know, certainly has information about me on it. But also, I think, um, practically speaking, it's important, um, has a lot of resource pages on it. So if you want evidence based information about ADHD, autism, you know, mindfulness, there's a, it, it hopefully has a useful resource section to it also. What's the biggest takeaway that you would tell our audience about ADHD, the biggest single thing you can tell them? I think we've said it several times. I mean, the, the most practical, useful thing to understand about ADHD that really helps manage it more thoroughly is that it is a, it is a delay in executive function, overall self-management skills, you know, and not what we typically used to think of as an attention disorder, you know, in isolation. And if you can really start to understand what executive function means day to day, not just as a kind of wonky scientific word, um, a lot of the solutions will come together for you. Well, Dr. Mark Burton, thank you so much for teaching us all today about ADHD and everything associated with it. I've personally learned a lot, but I'm sure our whole, our whole audience did. Thank you so much for all you're doing. No, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Appreciate it. Exploring Different Brains is a production of Different Brains. Visit us at differentbrains.org.